0: Genesis thirty-four. Thank you, Kevin, for assigning me that text. Um, I will tell you a few weeks ago when I told Kevin I could preach on this date, all he said was, "You know that's Genesis thirty-four, right?" And as I read that text, I felt a sense of impending doom, as if my fate as a preacher was being sealed by signing up to preach and teach this text. Uh, But this is no doubt a challenging text. I've probably gotten more text messages this weekend from people saying, hey, I'm praying for you, um, than I have ever before in preparing to teach. And so there's not a lot of redeeming storylines going on in Genesis 34. And as Kevin said last week, if it weren't for our practice to exegete the Scriptures book by book, chapter by chapter, and verse by verse, this text would surely never be taught in this pulpit. But that is what we do, because we believe as a people that all Scripture truly is god breathes. So here we are at Genesis 34. But before we dive in, uh, would you bow your heads and pray with me? <clears throat> Father, we uh, come and we prepare, Lord, um, to open your word. And I ask, Lord, that you would cultivate uh, the landscape of our souls ahead of us. God, with the things that would distract us, that would um, take away from the hearing and the obedience of your word, both in spirit and in truth, would you uh, dismantle them? God, would you cripple them? Would you remove them? And would you pluck them out? Lord, would your word be the loudest in our hearts this morning? And will we uh, be more faithful to follow you and to glorify you in your world because of what we hear this morning? Um, Lord, as a people, would you be with us now? We ask it in Christ's name, amen. All right, so as Kevin mentioned uh, last week, a few years ago as a church, we cracked open the book of Genesis. And Genesis, as a word, means in the beginning. Hence, the beginning of Genesis is in the beginning. And what we learn in just the first couple of chapters of Genesis is that in the beginning, God was. And that everything that was created was created by God. And the Bible tells us that all of it was good, meaning it was perfect, it was flawless, it was without defect. But more than that, it means that it's beauty, brilliance, and perfection echoed back to the world, the beauty, brilliance, and perfection of God himself. And amidst the backdrop of God's very good world, God sets man and woman in the middle of it as the crown jewel of all of creation. And so God's design for the human race can be summed up in a two-word Latin phrase. You may have heard it before. It's the phrase imago day." simply means the image of God, and that was God's design, his calling, if you will, for humanity alone. It was to personify and to project to the world who God is and what God is like. But as we know, and we can very much feel even this morning, things have gone awry. Right? Genesis 3 comes along, and with it comes sin, as man chooses to trust the voice in his head and the desires in his heart, rather than the voice of the one who created us. And the world has been fractured ever since. And by the time we get to Genesis 34, we're not even out of the first book of the Bible. Things have gone so far off the rails, like Norfolk Southern off the rails, if you will. Too soon? Okay, maybe not. Uh, That was the only intentional joke I have in this sermon, and it did not land well. (laughs) Um, So we'll just stick to it. okay? But what God designed to project forth His goodness has become a gross distortion and a blatant perversion of what was once created to be good, brilliant, and beautiful. So I've titled this sermon The Real World because that's what Genesis 34 is. It is the real world. It is the world as we know it and as we experience it. Genesis 34 reads like an excerpt out of the evening news or perhaps a front page headline in the New York Times. There is sexual sin, there's deception, there's revenge, there's politics, and there is not so much as a thought about God in all of it. There's no mention of God. There's no voice from heaven. There are no divine dreams. There are no angels speaking on God's behalf. You could say Genesis 34 is a godless chapter in the Bible. It's just an onslaught of sin. It is an arms race, if you will, all the way to the bloody end. And what we see here in chapter 34, and hence the reason for the subtitle, are samplings of sin on display. They're flavor profiles, if you will, of sin. We see three in particular. They come from our three major players in the text. If you're uh, taking notes, these would be our three points. They're not kind of witty or illustrative or anything like that. The first is that it comes from Jacob. That's the first sample of sin we see. It's from Jacob himself. He's our first flavor of sin. The second comes from Shechem, the son of Hamor. Shechem's kind of, uh, excuse me, or is kind of uh, grouped with Shechem, but we're going to focus on Shechem himself. And the last sample comes from Jacob's sons. Jacob's sons, led by their co-captains of Simeon and Levi. All right, so first let's look at Jacob's sin. Now, it should be noted there is a significant time gap between the end of chapter 33 that we looked at last week and the beginning of chapter 34 we're looking at this week. Scholars estimate it to be anywhere from a handful of years to a decade or perhaps even more. And so Genesis 34.1 doesn't come the day after Genesis 33.20. Okay, Scholars think primarily uh, this to be the case because the actions of Jacob's sons in chapter 34 could not be carried out by the children Jacob speaks of in chapter 33. Now that's important for you to know because the Jacob that we saw last week at the close of chapter 32 uh, and through the better part of chapter 33 isn't the Jacob we see in chapter 34. So if you um, remember from last week's text, by the end of chapter 33... Jacob had been reconciled to Esau, and he was on his way home. Right, the son of exile turned, uh, or son, excuse me, the son of promise turned son of exile. Finally, appeared to be kind of rounding the corner and approaching the fulfillment of God's promise from chapter twenty-eight, as he obeyed God's mandate from chapter thirty-one. But just as we begin to trust Jacob and his transformation, right from the one who cheats and deceives, which means is which is what Jacob means. To the one who contends with God in his new name, Israel, Jacob makes this very subtle move that takes him out of the posture of trusting and obeying and back into the posture of scheming and deceiving. And he does this when he decides to settle near the city of Shechem at the end of chapter 33, rather than continue on to Bethel as God had instructed him to do in chapter 31. Now, I think this was a deliberate move on the part of Jacob, partly because of his past, But he also seems to use his children and his livestock, if you go back to the end of chapter 33, to kind of evade the accountability and the oversight of his brother Esau. But even if this wasn't an intentionally deceptive move from Jacob, it is still at best a partial obedience to God, which last I checked is still disobedience. And all the parents nodded their heads, right? And so it is Jacob, not Israel, who takes us to the doorstep of chapter 34. You could say... Chapter 34, as a whole, with all of its brokenness, all of its baggage, is owing to Jacob's subtle sin at the end of chapter 33. And so as we cross the threshold from chapter 33 into chapter 34, Jacob's role changes in our text. Jacob goes from playing the part of crafty deceiver, which has been his role all along since we picked him up, to that of passive abdicator. We'll see Jacob again and again punt on his responsibility to father both his daughter and his sons, and to fulfill his role as the head of his household and the leader of his family. So, uh, kind of a sidebar here. There are two mistakes men make when it comes to fulfilling our role in the world. Both are on display in our text. So the first mistake that men err on in their masculine calling is that of over-aggression. Right? This is a, where men kind of become this hypermasculine masculine machismo, uh, kind of male dominance where men essentially behave like silverback gorillas and act as if violence, aggression, and, uh, and outrage are the answer to all of life's problems. We see this a lot in Hollywood. We see it far too often in politics. And occasionally, it's on display even in the church. Mar Driscoll, sadly, is a name that comes to mind. And in our text this morning, it is Shechem who embodies this particular male perversion. But more on that to come. The other mistake men make falls at the opposite end of the spectrum, and that's when men err on the side of passivity, and it's an over-suppression of male masculinity. So if you have Sylvester Stallone and James Bond on one end, which is hyper-masculinity, we see uh, Will Ferrell and John C. Riley from the Hollywood hit Step Brothers on the other end of masculinity, and under-masculinity, if you will. And this is where men essentially fail to grow up, fail to take responsibility, and fail to initiate as God has called and created us to do. And this is the masculine distortion we see most often in our world today. In fact, this was Adam's error back in Genesis 33 uh, three at the fall of man. Right? As Eve was falling prey to Satan's temptation in the garden, ask yourself, where was Adam? He was next to, it seems, his wife. Right? It says that Eve took some of the fruit and she ate it, and then she gave some to her husband who was with her. It's as if she just simply passed it to the left. And this type of distortion tends to take on one of two forms. So if you're younger in here, uh, like some of you guys, nope, nope, I'm not trying to point the finger, I'm just saying that's the the demographic to this side of the room, it typically looks like a refusal to make commitments and accept responsibility, and you just kind of spend your life playing with toys for grown-ups. As you age, though, which is a lot of the rest of the room, right? Not that you're old, Okay. But it often looks like stepping back and kind of sulking in the corner of your life because no one's making you feel as important as you think yourself to be. To quote Matt Chandler, men in both of these camps and at both ends of the spectrum are essentially little boys with facial hair. They've grown up physically, but spiritually, emotionally, and relationally, they are still very much immature and juvenile. And hear me, gentlemen in the room, please. All of us. All of us tend to fall in one of these two categories. All of us do fall, right? We all have some Jacob and we all have some Shechem in us. And a good exercise in self-awareness this afternoon as you're perhaps eating chips and cheese dip at Monterey's is to ask your spouse if you're married or a a brother or sister who trusts or who you know well and who will be honest with you, where do I lie on this spectrum? What's my default here? Do I resort to hyper-masculinity and just overpowering everything in my way? Or do I sit and sulk in the corner of my life and under-masculinity? And this is a good thing for us to know, guys. It's a hard thing to hear, but it is a good thing for us to know because we can't fight an enemy that we are unaware of. And just cards on the table here in case you think I'm kind of railing against you, my tendency is to sit back and sulk. Because when I'm very much in the flesh, and that's when this happens, My world is all about me, and I want everyone else's world to be about me too. And it's sinful, and it's pathetic, and I hate it when I do it, but that's my tendency. And so this is a good thing for us to know, and then with that awareness, we have to remember that the antidote to that tendency is not to swing hard in the other direction, right? It's simply to come back to center. It's a shoulder responsibility, well, to initiate the chaos and to bring it into order and to show up faithfully in the places and spaces where God has called and created us to be men and to do this at the same time with all meekness and humility as Jesus himself did in the scriptures. So that's kind of a side tangent over. We'll get back to the text and back to Jacob's sin specifically. Um, And as we said earlier, Jacob errs on the side of overabdication and he does this several places in our text. Now, the first one actually comes in verse 1. It says this uh, again. It says, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. Now, that sounds innocent enough. You may ask yourself, what has Jacob done here? He's not even apparent in the text. But Jacob's sin here lies not in what he does, but in what he doesn't do. Commentators say that this move from Dinah to go out to see the women of the land was a reckless one, and perhaps even a dangerous one. And in an ancient Middle Eastern culture, it was one that the patriarch of the family, namely Jacob, should have prevented. It was Jacob's decision to plant his family near this Canaanite city. And Jacob surely knew how ruthless and idolatrous the people of this city can be. And yet, Jacob provides neither discipline nor protection for his only daughter, Dinah. And the tragic result, as we know, is that she was raped and taken advantage of by Shechem. Next, look down to verse 5. It says, Jacob heard that Shechem had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with the livestock in the field, and so Jacob held his peace until they came. So for Jacob to not act impulsively in this moment was probably a good idea. But to not act at all, that was sinful. And if we're honest, it was very, very pathetic of Jacob. His only daughter had been taken advantage of, and he does nothing. The word in the text there for held his peace is the Hebrew word harash, which means to be silent or deaf, which means that Jacob's inaction here, his hesitancy, his seeming indifference was not because Jacob was planning a calculated response. It was because Jacob was choosing to act as if he had never heard this news to begin with. So instead of taking ownership of the fact that his own passivity had played a large part in Dinah's defilement and in turn kind of taking ownership and responding in wisdom, Jacob continues to leave his role vacant uh, for others to fill in his place. Skip down lastly to verse 13. And once again, we see an opportunity for Jacob to step up to the plate as the father and leader of his family. And once again, we are left wanting. So in verses 6 through 12, I won't reread it again for you. But Shechem and his dad, uh, Hamor, approach Jacob, and they are asking for uh, for Dinah's hand in marriage. And while his sons are present for this exchange... These men, Shechem and Hamor, are obviously and explicitly directing the request towards Jacob, the father of the family. And this is as good as it gets for Jacob. They are teeing up a softball for him here, right? Jacob is looking at his, uh, the man who defiled his daughter right in the eye, and even so, Jacob says nothing. He does nothing. He simply stands there and allows his sons to speak and do his silence. So as I mentioned earlier, um, that this is a godless chapter of the Bible, and I say that not to say that God is absent or aloof from the events in our text. I say that simply to say that we see no objective evidence of God's activity in this text. And while that is true, um, that this is, you could say, a godless chapter, oddly enough, it's nearly a Jacobless chapter as well. Despite being our primary protagonist at this point in the Genesis narrative, Jacob actually says nothing in this chapter Not a single word until we get all the way down to verse 30, which is the penultimate verse in the chapter. And the only reason Jacob speaks up there is purely out of self-interest and self-preservation. He says this in verse 30, and he says it specifically towards Simeon and Levi. He says, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me, notice all of the personal pronouns he's using there, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Now, Jacob has come a long way in our story, right? He's gone from having nothing and using a rock for a pillow to now having a family, material wealth, and cultural affluence. And all of that has been a gift and a grace from the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. But despite God's grace to keep his promises, and despite his daughter's defilement and his son's committing murder, Jacob's primary concern at this point in the text is that Jacob might lose everything he's worked so hard to gain. The deceiver from chapter 33 finally shows his hand in chapter 34, and as he opens his mouth in verse 30, it explains why he failed to do so earlier. And that's because if Jacob would have spoken up, It would have sabotaged his plans and crippled his kingdom. And at this point in the story, that is the thing that means the most to Jacob. And that's the thing he can't stand to lose. Next, let's look at Shechem, the son of Hamor. uh, Shechem's sin, excuse me, that's hard to say five times fast. Shechem's sin here in chapter 34 stands as a stark juxtaposition to the sins of Jacob in chapter 34. So where Jacob was passive and even indifferent, Shechem is assertive, aggressive, and dominating. Shechem sees what he wants, and he takes it by force. And the canvas we see his personality played out on is in his love and his longing for Dinah. And Shechem shows us specifically what a worldly and sinful love looks like. Now, we have to remember that Shechem here comes from a secular culture. This is not a child of promise. It is not a child of covenant. He has not grown up hearing about the God of his forefathers, Abraham and Isaac. Rather, he has been steeped in an idolatrous culture, which has informed and deformed his worldview. So we really can't, or at least we probably shouldn't expect much different from Shechem. And I say that not to excuse his behavior, but rather to explain it. And so Shechem shows us what happens morally and spiritually in a people whose sin goes unchecked. And that's that they end up so far from God's design for intimacy as to think rape is an appropriate initiation of love. And so the Bible would define love within the context of marriage as a deep covenant commitment to a single member of the opposite sex for their ultimate and eternal good, so much so that you are willing to lay your life down to see that happen. Let me say that again because I chose that very intentional Uh, language there, a very specific language. I want to say that again. The Bible would define love within the context of marriage as a deep covenant commitment to a single member of the opposite sex for their ultimate and eternal good, so much so you are willing to lay your life down and set aside all comfort to see that happen in that person's life. It will cost you to be married. It should cost you, or you're not doing it right, myself included. And this is nothing that we see in Shechem. So what Shechem embodies, what he personifies isn't love at all, it is lust. right? Which is merely a shallow superficial attraction to another person based on the way they make you feel. Lust is narcissism veiled as virtue. So notice the sequence of events here between Shechem and Dinah and how it flips the biblical model for love and marriage. So in the biblical model, God brings one man... And one woman into the covenant of marriage. This is two becoming one. And after that has happened relationally, emotionally, and spiritually, then and only then do we become one physically. God is, for, um, he is all for consummation. He is pro-consummation of marriage, right? But only inside the safe and intimate container and confines of marriage. Shechem, however, reverses this equation. Shechem sees what he wants, namely Dinah. He objectifies her. And without covenant or consent, he takes what he wants, regardless of how it makes her feel, regardless of his uh, thoughts about God or what God would would, would honor God, what would glorify God. He just takes it, doesn't ask. And he rapes Dinah. And because Shechem likes what he feels, he he thinks Dinah's okay, puffs him up. Then and only then does he commit to marry Dinah. In fact, some commentators would say that Shechem's marriage to Dinah was likely more of a political move on the part of his father than it was a commitment from Shechem to love and cherish her. And notice the language from Shechem here towards Dinah mirrors the language from Genesis 3 in Eve's taking of the fruit uh, and man's original sin. So in Genesis 3, I want to read it for you. It says this, and again, I want you to notice the comparison here between Genesis 3 and our sin in the garden and Shechem sinned with Dinah as he takes advantage of her and defiles this woman. It says this in Genesis 3. When the woman saw that the tree, so Saul, he sees her, was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she takes the fruit and she eats it. In Genesis 34, it says, When Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, sees her, and you could say he, she was a delight to the eye, no doubt we can believe that, He seized her, or he he took her, excuse me, and he laid with her. So this is an intentional attempt here from Moses, the author of Genesis, to help the readers put Shechem's defilement of Dinah into the same category as Eve's tasting of the forbidden fruit. This is Moses emphasizing, as he says in the text, that this was a thing that should not have been done. It was wrong, it was sinful, and it was evil. So Jacob and Shechem show us, show us two sides of the same coin here, with each one representing a fallen form of masculinity, which leads us to our final sample of sin, which comes from Jacob's sons. And Jacob's sons add a third dimension to the mix, and that is essentially to fill the role that Jacob leaves wide open for them to do so. So it was Aristotle who first coined the phrase "horror vacui. I could be saying that wrong if you uh, know Latin. Tyler, is that a, a butchering of that phrase? No? Okay. Horror vacui, yes, with confidence. Um, <laughs> but that's the, the Latin phrase that we understand to mean nature abhors a vacuum. Right? Maybe you've heard that before. If you don't understand it, this will hopefully add some context. So we see this phenomenon at work in Genesis 34. And Jacob leaves two holes specifically for his sons to fill. The first was in playing his rightful part as the leader and initiator as the father of his family. The second hole Jacob leaves is to live... uh, The second hole, excuse me, was in living up to and into his name as the deceiver. And as Jacob steps out of this role as the deceiver in the text, his sons step right into it, and they are more than happy to fill his shoes. So it's Jacob's sons, not Jacob, who respond to Shechem's sin. And it's Jacob's sons, not Jacob, who play the part of the deceiver in our text. It appears that in the time it took to get from Genesis 33.20... To Genesis 34.1, Jacob has grown old and with it indifferent, and his sons have grown into the image that was set before them of what it means to be a man. Look with me at Genesis 34.5-7. It says, When Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his sons were in the field with his livestock. So he did nothing about it until they came home. Then Shechem's father Hamor went out to talk with Jacob. Meanwhile, Jacob's sons had come in from the field. As soon as they heard what had happened... They were shocked and furious because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel by sleeping with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not have been done. But Hamor spoke with them, that is, Jacob's sons. So notice here the juxtaposition between Jacob's lack of response and his son's immediate response. Jacob acts as if he has never heard this. His sons, as soon as they hear this news, rush into the house. They are furious at Shechem. Notice also the difference here between Jacob's lack of emotion and his son's abundance of emotion. And again, for Jacob to not not act impulsively would have been wise, but to not act at all was sinful. And so rather than Jacob responding uh, to sin with wisdom, maturity, and grace, sin continues through immature and impulsive leadership, collecting compound interest along the way. Next, notice here that Hamor comes to speak with Jacob. It says that in the text, but rather he ends up speaking with Jacob's sons. And so Hamor proposes a marriage to take place that will assimilate these two tribes. And then Shechem comes in, and he basically writes a blank check for uh, Dinah's hand in marriage, the bride price, which Jacob's sons see as an opportunity for revenge, and they exploit it through the means of deception. Look with me at verses 13 through 17. It says, The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing, to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are uh, by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and will uh, not be circumcised, then we will take our daughter, and we will be gone. So Joseph's sons kind of dangle Dinah out like a carrot on a stick, knowing that Shechem is desperate to have her and that Hamor is desperate to put his son's sins to bed, pun intended. And the condition they give for giving their sister away is that all of the Shechemite males must be circumcised, which would not only mar these men physically, but it would mutilate God's covenant sign to his people. This was defilement of the sign of circumcision God had given to his people originally and yet they they don't care about that they just want what they want Moses tells us point blank that his sons were acting deceitfully and they never intended to give Dinah to Shechem Uh, the condition though was simply a way to disable their opponents physically which obviously it did successfully and to prevent their opponents from anticipating a threat of retaliation and it works right, we see in verse 18, the words pleased Hamor and Shechem, which, fellas, I want you to get that. These guys heard, we have to be circumcised, and they are happy with this news, which is saying a lot, considering they agreed to circumcision before the modern marvels of lidocaine and Percocet. And yet it pleased them, because Hamor thinks he has avoided war, and Shechem thinks he has bought his bride. And all the while, the hatred that hides in Jacob's son's heart continues to fly under the radar. And so Hamor, Shechem, and their men do in fact go through with their end of the deal. And after a few days when they are good and sore, basically disabled, Simeon and Levi murder every man in the tribe and the rest of Jacob's sons plunder the rest of the city, more than making up for da- Dinah's defilement. Excuse me, And their defense to their dad for all that they've done, their excuse, if you will, their rationale, is should we have let our sister be treated like a prostitute, which was basically what they were accusing Jacob of doing, for entertaining a payment in exchange for his daughter's defilement. And so at the close of chapter 34, we have a blood-stained city, and Jacob and his boys both standing in sin, and both standing at odds with one another over their handling of Genesis 34, verse 1. And there is no hero to look up to, There is no silver lining to highlight, and while justice has been served, it has been paid extremely unjustly. And the question at the end of Genesis 34 is, where does this leave us? Right? This is why this is a difficult text. There's just nowhere to go from here. We are at rock bottom, and I think the answer is, it should leave us longing for a hero that can and will deliver on their promises, for a hero that we can hope and trust in and that won't leave us frustrated and dejected. And I think it leaves us asking the question that Paul asked himself in Romans 7 as he is kind of teasing out his own frustrations in his faithfulness to follow Jesus. Right? Paul is talking, as Allison read for us earlier, he's talking about this civil war taking place between his flesh and his spirit. He sounds like a multiple personality patient, right? He says things like, the things I want to do, I can't seem to do. And the things I don't want to do, I I almost can't help but do. And you can hear the anxiety, the tension within Paul building as he gets to verse 24. And he asks this question, who will deliver me from this body of death? And Paul's answer is not himself. It's not Paul will deliver Paul. And the answer we get from Genesis thus far, 34 chapters into the book, is that it won't be Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob either. If the Genesis narrative teaches us anything it teaches us that we are not the hero of our story we're actually part of the problem i love the theologian taylor swift's admission of this truth in her hit song and my new number one favorite anti hero <laughs> and whether or not she knows what he sh- uh, she's saying she is point uh, she's spot on and she says this lyric several times in the chorus i think it's the chorus she says it's me i'm i'm the problem it's me right and she kind of repeats that a few times i won't say it all but she's right Right? That is the human reality. That is the human experience. As broken people living in a broken world, we are constantly disappointing ourselves and the people around us. And the first step in curing our disease is to realize that we can't cure it. We cannot fix ourselves because we cannot be trusted. But this is not so with Jesus. Because unlike the patriarchs in Genesis and unlike the people in this room, Jesus isn't passive or abusive or deceptive. Instead, he is the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and yet he wields it with grace and humility. He is the lion and the lamb, the sovereign of all come as the servant of all, and he is altogether worthy of our worship. We should look to him, church. Let's pray.